Hey, hello, everybody, and welcome to the first patron book club of 2023. Hello. 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 All right. So today we have with us uh, Adam, uh, Cyrus, Robert Coleman, Dan Alexander, Brandon Cruz, and Rick Byrne. And I am your uh, facilitator or something, something, hoy. Uh, Jeff is not with us. He's traveling today, but he will be recording later today. And we are week reading Michael Chabon's uh, Gentleman of the Road. So, everybody, what uh, editions or versions are you working with, Adam? This is uh, Ballantine. It's got a red circle in the front and elephants marching all around the circle. Nice. Okay. Robert? Uh, same uh, company and uh, publisher. It's a hardback from the library, so I don't think there's probably any difference inside. Okay. And Daniel? I think I've probably got the same one. Mine's got um, maps in the covers and beautiful illustrations. Um, everyone else is illustrated? Yes. Lovely. I've got the uh, ebook from the library, but I did like the book enough that I might pick up a hardcover copy or paperback because I do love Gary Gianni's art. He's a phenomenal artist. He does a really good um, Solomon Kane in the Delray Robert E. Howard collections. So. Okay, so um, before we dive in, any, well, I guess this book has a plethora of them, uh, high Gaxian word candidates from <laughs> Daniel York. I could have one. So many. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, well, yeah, there's, there's lots. So I, I, I really liked Howder, H O W D A H, a seat or covered a pavilion on the back of an elephant, um, which uh, I think he might have got from George MacDonald Fraser, although he's, he probably knew it himself anyway. <laughs> Right. Uh, how about you, Ray? So <clears throat> I thought, because Gygax likes, likes to use words that could be explained with more normal, mundane language. So I actually thought the Radonites would be an excellent one, because it's talked about so much here, which is basically a, a Jewish merchant. It was a kind of a network of merchants that essentially after the, when the Dark Ages hit, they actually kept, kept a lot of communication channels open, including the Silk Road to China, which... I think most people from a kind of Christian background don't realize. And I thought a Radonite might be where the Gygax might use, without, instead of saying like traveling merchants or something like that, mm -hmm. um, and so on. And just it's kind of central to the plot, especially towards the end. I thought that'd be a nice word. Mm -hmm. Like it might be like a guild or something in there. Right. right. Yeah. The, yeah. The guild. And he, of course, he would completely decouple it from Judaism. It would just be like the Radonites, yeah. like the when he's yeah. phylactery for the <laughs> liches or something like that. <laughs> How about you, Brandon? Uh, yeah, there's a lot. Um, I think, I don't think it was ever named. So I don't know if this is a vocabulary word, but it's a Hygaxian thing. And that's the Ancus. Mm -hmm. That the, uh, is it the, the Mahout? The bell. In the beginning, mm -hmm. he's got, because I was, I was like, what is that they're talking about? This ivory wand with kind of a, a bent spear tip. Mm -hmm. Lit up, and I was like, "Oh, this is a it's a it's an elephant goad." And I thought that's just fits right in with my you know obsession with AD and D weapon sheets, where I learned you know all about you know like Glaive Gazarms and right, Shark right. Works and <laughs> Falchions and everything. It's like, oh, you just put the Ancus right, and there'd be a good Druid weapon for somebody mm -hmm, who's mm -hmm. like a, F. a Middle Eastern Druid. If any of you ever go onto the uh, Metropolitan Museum. Uh, a website here in New York. They have the, an amazing arms and arm collection, but they also have a, a ton of, they actually even have a um, Twitter feed, but they have a ton of uh, public domain images of the stuff that's in their collection. And so you've seen like some really ornate ancuses from that collection too. So uh, if you're ever looking for clip art for your, uh, you know, for your game, that's a, a great source. Oh yeah. Um, the samurai armor alone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How about you, Robert? So, uh, sentimental favorite for me is Chatronge, the ancient form of chess. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and when I, uh, I'm, I've been a chess player, although I'm terrible, unfortunately, uh, but I love the game and, uh, it just made me start thinking the, uh, Amram is an avid chess player and it features into the plot later a little bit. And, uh, also, just the fact that uh, chess was considered a war game, although it's fairly divorced from the idea of war uh, in our time, 
But uh, in the beginning, I think it was considered a war game, a game of strategy, and and uh, maybe the first war game that's uh, filtered down to our times. And and then uh, I thought, well, that comes through uh, miniature war gaming and thus to role playing, which uh, hooks in with this. So mm-hmm. the uh, Chinese version of chess, I think, has a more. I was always a terrible player. I couldn't really play it at all, but my dad and my uncle used to play. That still has a like, more direct connection to the sort of the representations of the things it's trying to do because it actually has like forts and cannons and mm-hmm. has like a central fort in the middle. Um, yeah. I, I never forgot how to play it, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> is that Go or is that something else? It's not Go. It does have a, a grid, but also ha- it has diagonal lines, but you have a sort of like a fort sort of in the middle at your end. Um, and then you have, so each person has a fort area that they can defend has, that has some diagonal lines and the rest of our grid. Um, but someone will just tell me, I just got it completely wrong, but I do remember there was cannons and elephants and other pieces like that mm-hmm. on the board too. So, and yeah, and that reminded me, I wanted to mention because elephants are so big in this book that, uh, one of the original pieces for on the chessboard, instead of a bishop, if you know, the pieces of chess, you had an elephant that was, nice. uh, that was a piece. So there you go. And how about you, Adam? I think the cannons were rooks. I think. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, I had uh, dirham, which is a silver unit of currency historically and currently used by several Arab and Arab influenced states. So a dirham is like a silver piece. There you go. And uh, Robert, I want to ask you. When you lost, did you lose as poorly as Bullshan when he lost? <laughs> uh, no, I mean I'm I'm a I'm a uh, I guess you'd say I'm a good loser. I just internalize it. So, <laughs> is, is that a chess master in the background of your? World? Yeah, I was going to say it, it is. It's Bobby Fisher. Sorry, the the light so. is not too good. But uh, when he was very young, I think that was taken at the Marshall Chess Club, probably. So, yeah. He was okay. not a good loser. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, okay. So, uh, what did everybody think of uh, Gentleman of the Road? Uh, let's start with you, Adam. Uh, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was. Uh, I don't know. It was a good adventure, mm-hmm. and they were they were like rogues with heart hearts of gold because they went out of their way not to kill people in this book. So. Mm-hmm. So that was all good. Okay. And uh, how about you, Robert? I liked it a lot. It's uh, just a fun, uh, quick, and very easy read. It, uh, I had read Cavalier and Clay, I guess, closer to when that came out. And that was my first experience of uh, Shaban. And this remind this reading, it, his, his voice, his prose style reminded me a lot of that book somehow and it took me a little while to wrap my head around uh, how to read his sentences because he kind of uh, has these digressions in the sentence structure but once i got in the flow of that it wasn't bad or anything it's just uh not real straightforward uh hemingway-esque uh so uh and it just felt very uh much of its influences which i'm sure will We'll talk about but but also like a completely uh unique setting and characters in terms of the backgrounds and uh so it's like all at once very familiar and then he's adding all this other uh stuff into the mix the jewish cultural and uh identity and all that so it it was good yeah yeah how about you daniel um, well, I mean, the portents were really good that he dedicated it yeah. to Michael Moorcock and his, <laughs> his, his name is Michael Shea Bon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but like everyone else, and I, I found it really enjoyable. His prose is just fabulous. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, it's, it's so well crafted. I, I, I enjoyed it so much. I read it twice. Um, uh, and, and the, the historical element of it was completely unfamiliar to me. And I, I thought it was really interesting. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, uh, I had no idea about sort of the, you know, obviously we know that 
Jews were around and, and, you know, have survived down through the ages. And so it must have been part of any society in that area. But I didn't know any much about that. I knew about the Vikings traveling down the Volga, you know, and, and that, you know, that stuff. But I did not know much. You know, I'd heard the name the Khazars from the um, the diction of the Khazars that came out in the 90s. Yeah, so it was very metafiction. Um, but other than that, I had not, didn't know much about the era. How about you, Brian? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I kind of did, um, I did a Jeff <laughs> in that I listened to the audiobook. Um, and it was narrated by Andre Brower. And I mm. think, uh, Shabon's like very, very long sentences and Andre Brower's kind of baritone didn't really lend itself to forward momentum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like trying to like listen to it. But then once I read the actual book, it, it really clicked for me. I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. I've read, um, three other Shabon stories and like, I don't like Cavalier and Clay. I felt like it was a story he had to tell like, um, wonder boys is he had things to say about academia. And I, I didn't get that same fire out of this, but, um, it was really, it was a great read. Mm-hmm. The one I'm interested in of, of his is a uh, Yiddish policeman's union, which seems also sort of like mm-hmm. almost more, more cocky than this one from the description. And so that, that would be a, a fascinating follow up to this one. And then I do have to eventually read Cavalier and Clay as well, but, um, how about you, Rick? So he, he does mention in the afterward that this was a story he felt like saying, but and unlike other books that he was compelled to say. And he was like, what? There was a, a Jewish kingdom and there was Jews fighting with swords. Jews with swords was his working title for a long time. <clears throat> and he thought this was funny. And actually, he explains in the afterward, it's like, why is this funny? Jews had swords until relatively recently in all the various cultures they were in. Um but he said it's somehow funny that you consider that to be anachronistic and so on, yet it, it shouldn't be. And even Zeligman uses this kind of lancet type thing, not even a full sword, and he's the main Jewish character. So it's kind of, he kind of goes back on what he talks about as his main motivation. And maybe in a previous version, Amran was also Jewish, and then he changed him later on. He's an Ethiopian Jew, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's uh, not, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not made explicit. I, th- I think I missed yeah. that somehow. And, yeah. um, you know, he's not very practicing though compared. No, to no, Zellig. definitely, definitely not. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and I think, um, kind of to Adam's point, it's kind of interesting that they do have a doctor who's obviously um, trying to save life, or as he puts it, to prolong the futility rather than save the life. <laughs> Fantastic throwaway line. Um, and so he is trying to not kill people when possible. But then as well, at the same time, he is a, a fighter type who says, oh, fuck it. Well, I have to kill this guard now because the alarm has been raised. Um, and so on. So it's nice having that duality of that kind of central character. I felt in some places he, Zeligman was more his main central character than Amran, even though they're both equally billed, essentially. And I just wish there was more about Felique in many ways earlier on. Obviously, it couldn't because of the big reveal. Um, but I felt that that trio of characters made a really interesting trio for the party mm-hmm. the sort sort of party because she goes and comes right from them and then but overall the sort of, go ahead go ahead oh and then there's the uh, the sort of late edition of a hanukkah too which is yeah. <laughs> yeah again an unusual name it's yeah. like if you had a character named christmas who was in the party mm-hmm. um but yes it was a, an interesting party of characters that all came together that i thought was very interesting as well mm-hmm. um so one thing I was struck by, you had mentioned the discursiveness of the book. And I noticed that not just within the sentence structure, but the fact that he would sometimes just wander away to another character and just have like a, their series of thoughts, like the archer captain or like the various different merchants that they encountered along the way. Um, and, you know, the Muslim uh, captains. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And then um as I understand it, I believe this was serialized in the New York Times, uh, maybe in the Sunday Times over a period of, of weeks or months. Um, so that's why each chapter sort of is, has a sort of its own sort of little narrative structure and conclusion in there, even though it's part of a larger story. Um, and so I thought that was an interesting homage to, uh, I mean, we can talk about all the influence, but right there, that seems very Dumas-like, right? As Dumas publishing 
on, you know, in the daily newspapers. Um, we obviously see that it was dedicated to Moorcock. Um, I'm sure that you all see some of the other obvious influences. So let's, let's talk about some of those influences. Um, anybody here, feel free to chime in. Robert, I think you had mentioned the influences first. So. Uh, well, right off, it made me think of uh, Robert E. Howard's uh, Middle Eastern uh, Afghanistan type adventures, El Borak. It just seemed it's different time period, but it's uh, sort of in the same, close to the same neighborhood on the map. And uh, it just seemed very, uh, the, the, there's something about it. It's hard for me to say exactly what but it seemed like he i'm guessing he read those and uh and the what you were just talking about hoy the serialized nature of it it reminded me a lot of hour of the dragon which we recently talked about just uh, i know that was published in serialized form and it definitely seemed that they're like they say gentlemen of the road and they go from uh occurrence to occurrence there there's an adventure around every corner for them and each one of those is a is a little story of its own and um wow i mean there's just so many i didn't really pick up the dumas uh stuff because i haven't read dumas in so long decades now uh but i loved it when i was younger but i definitely picked up the uh michael moorcock influence in the sense that uh they were the the pair of them uh amram and zelikman reminded me of of moonglum and elric and i've been reading uh rereading those stories recently so that came to mind and and zelikman reminds me of solomon kane in a lot mm-hmm. of ways mm-hmm. uh and of course fofford and the gray mouser sure. so i don't know if i i don't want to steal everything so i'll I'll leave something. I see uh, both uh, Daniel nodding and Brandon Brandon laughing. So uh, I'll give it to Daniel here for first. first. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, I I I, I think the 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 kind of genre parallels and 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 uh, taking the the kind of tragedies that protagonists like Elric and and Faftemaus in terms of their their lost loves and um, and rooting those in in historical realities is is really interesting and and giving the, these characters quite quite deep motivations because of the trauma that they've experienced is 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 comes through really really clearly and I, and I, I mean i felt there's a lot of libel coming through but both in terms of the the, the characters, and particularly sort of amram as 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 fafford and also in terms of the the humor there um mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, I mean, it's interesting that he's obviously a big, a, a massive fan of, of, of Burroughs and, uh, and, 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 and Moorcock. And, and, and it interested me with, with, with Burroughs that that's probably the, the one thing that's really missing. Um, I think something Brandon alluded to that, that if there's one thing that doesn't quite work compared with the, the, the appendix and literature, it's the restraint. And there's, there is a, Kind of a lack of of pace about it, um, and it, it it isn't headlong in the way that um, the, the the best of these these writers it are. Um, but there's an awful lot of parallels. All right. Yeah. So Brandon, you had mentioned that it sort of gelled to you now that you've re- you read it after hearing the the audiobook. Um, do you think that the um, sort of the lack of the traditional pulp pace is now a feature or a bug, if you will. Uh, well, I mean, this is, I, I think I was kind of colored by, I came into it thinking, oh, this is going to be a Fabric and the Grey Mouncer redux, right? This is going to be, oh, he's a fan, clearly, you know, he's a, he's a genre uh, fan. And um, it wasn't that. Right. And so it kind of took me a while to kind of get over that hump. But when I, I mean, I think what it, what it really is, um, it's a Western. Um, mm. it's, it's if like, you know, if an opening with two guys fighting over a hat isn't a Western, then I don't know what is. And <laughs> it has that, that, um, you know, that it's not a frontier per se, because this is, these are all established cultures. But I mean, you have, um, in, uh, in 
you have Amram, who's like, he's, a, he's almost like Ella Josie Wales. Like he's a solid family man who's lost, you know, he's lost his family and that sent him out on the road. And he, he doesn't really know where to direct his, his, um, his regrets, but that, you know, he knows that the road is the place. And then like in Zeligman, you almost have the man with no name, right? He's from someplace far away. He dresses in black. He's melancholy. And, you know, he's, uh, he's got secrets. And uh, then they have this responsibility of an orphan like they didn't ask for it but it's foisted upon them but you know since they're gentlemen of the road they shoulder this responsibility and sure enough the child gets taken from them and they're off right, right. this is a western it even has almost like a shootout resolution at the end right. like it's um right. and she's ultra bratty like in true grit or something like that too at the right. i think silverado <laughs> pointed it up real well you know it's like right. we gotta save the little boy where's the little boy it's like that's <laughs> You know, those these are all elements of the Western to me. And as soon as that kind of like gelled in my mind, um, then uh, I had a great time. Mm-hmm. And their their patron is shot early. Yeah, There's no just, difficult. None of the questions can be asked from the rooftop, just like, right? Gone. Over the tavern. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> and an of hour. course, they they have a fortune. Definitely Western. They make a fortune and they lose the fortune right away. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Adam, you have any extra thoughts on this? <clears throat> Um, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think I have much to add right now. Right. Sorry. No, no. So, uh, so you bring up a couple of interesting things. I hadn't thought about it in terms of Western, um, probably just because I was thinking East, East, East. Um, it reminded me a lot of, of the uh, Harold Lamb. Um, I've only read his Cossack stories, but that same thing, because it's in the same, uh, maybe not quite the same time period. Um, I know he wrote other stories in that, you know, throughout Central Asia and, and you know, um, in the, the steppes of Asia. Um, and he was also a big influence on um, on uh, Robert E. Howard. Uh, Harold Lamb's characters tend to have a lot of uh, sly, uh, sly, not so much the sort of humor that Liber has, but the, they are getting very sly and take advantage of their environment and stuff like that. Um, but again, it's interesting that you mentioned Western because I guess one thing that people always go back to is that D&D is in no way really medieval right it's it's really a western with sort of ren fair trappings on top of it right <laughs> um or at least dnd as uh uh codified by gygax not necessarily what you know we might play nowadays so you know, we might circle back onto that on the gaming side but i think that's an interesting thought um i also know there's a whole soviet genre of film and daniel maybe you could expand on this the, the, the eastern right which is <laughs> you know the the conquest of the, the far uncivilized east right yeah, so I know I know that historically, but but not in terms of cinema. That's obviously yeah. something I'm going to have to catch up on. Right. I know that in the the, the Soviet bloc, the Warsaw Pact nations loved westerns, and they would make westerns in their native languages. There was something universal about the. I remember there was a ton of Polish westerns with entirely filmed in Polish. It filmed in the cold, dank Eastern Europe. <laughs> um, but if there's something about that, like. You're a lone man with some other lone men going out from the town, which is civilization, to face the wilderness, the unknown, beyond the rules. Might have appealed to them more than even our Western sentimentality. Well, even the squirrely like government, right? Like mm-hmm. that is very like even here. It's like you have um, what's his name, the usurper. Like he's playing the ruse. Yeah. against the South so that he has time to go to the Crimea, you know, and, but, oh, they're secretly colluding in the background. It's very much like trying to sell railroads through, you know, territories. Right. Um, one thing I had noticed, and um, I think I've, I've seen a few Soviet films, but not that many, but I've seen a lot of uh, Wuxia and Kung Fu films, is that um, even though they were made often in Hong Kong or Taiwan, they were also had to sell into the Chinese market. So you couldn't say anything about communism or anything but you could talk about a past time period and that could be a sly allusion to the current authoritarian governments that were you know in place wherever and so i'm sure that the soviet film could do sort of a similar thing by by setting it in sort of the czarist era and then you could talk about you know whether certain people are counter-revolutionaries or not um and then also i noticed that they would use stuff like um you know, Georgia or these other sort of uh, caucus, caucuses, uh, civilizations that sort of, again, stand-ins for this, the exoticism of, you know, or the, the quote-unquote barbarianism of, of, you know, that we would see Native Americans portrayed as, you know, you know, in films that we watch now. So I know there's a whole genre. I'm not very well versed in it, 
but I definitely know that there's, there's people who are really fascinated and, and like to draw the parallels between those. Um, so, um, any other sort of like story things, whether structurally or by characterization or even other bits like that, that you just thought really were like, Hey, wow, that's something new I hadn't seen before. I, I, I just want the one for me that I really liked the, the, the role of the animals in the story. Mm -hmm. And and the almost telepathic relationship between um, Seligman and Hillel, his his horse, and obviously Philak and the elephants, and and actually in the first scene, the minor bird that can insult in a dozen languages, <laughs> um, which um, I I don't know if this is, this is um, what inspired him, but it, in Beirut in the eighties there was a um, a parrot called Coco that could. Uh, that, that was in the, the hotel where the journalist stayed, and it it, it could imitate the, the the sound of bombs, and so the 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 the, the neophytes <laughs> will dive under the tables. <laughs> so uh, um, yeah, so, so so it's perfectly credible that that could have um, right. pr provoked provoked the assault right, right. in the first chapter. And, and the more I think about it, uh, Brandon, I think your point about it being a Western, it, not only Western, it so much makes me think of like those. Not even like the major, but the B grade spaghetti westerns. Like this is that would be a scene out of a B grade spaghetti western with the the Bina bird, you know. <laughs> so, um, I, I really liked um, that I was fooled, or I didn't figure out that uh, Felique was a girl or a woman, and uh, that that tricked me, and so that reveal was effective. And then I was very intrigued after we saw it uh how it was going to play out mm -hmm. and then very surprised at the end when there was actually some sex in the book um that came completely unexpected so i think that that all uh he she was a, a an effective macguffin for the plot I, that i guess they're chasing after her the whole way basically and and so i thought um she was a very interesting character. I think uh, I forget who said, but I wish she had. I also wish that she had been more uh, developed as a character. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and on a reread, it, 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 you can see that Shabon plays really fair on on that. I mean, not like you, Robert. I I, I didn't see it, but I I liked Philak much much more on the second read, um, understanding where she was coming from. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's yeah, actually a plot device in Dustin Hoffman's Little Big Man as well, where the the uh, Native Americans make the deal with the daughter, not realizing it, it's she's a girl. They realize later on, and um, so he might have just borrowed it from that, or that might have been his like right. mental thinking. Right. The assassination yeah. attempt, I think, is the uh, was the tipping point for me because you could almost feel the crackle between them when she she has his knife. She says, this isn't even suited for a woman. And they're just standing face to face. And Amra was like, what's going on? Here? <laughs> yeah. I, love, I do love the scene also when she bites off the uh, Turkoman's ear. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, but I agree with Daniel uh, that um, I caught on uh, fairly early, but I think I was reading it a little slower. So as I was reading it a little slower, he does play fair. He leaves all these various clues like, you know, uh, the clean shaven and, and um and then it's funny a couple of times they mentioned that uh, uh, femininity is equated with camels. So like, uh, you know, Amram has like, <laughs> like eyes as soft as a camels. And, and then, and then, and then they mentioned that she, uh, Philak has sort of a, uh, an odd camel like sway in, in his gait. <laughs> you know, so. mm -hmm. That's when nice. she's picking her way through the uh, horse turds in the camp. Exactly. Exactly. You know, kind of exactly. <laughs> Curious boy, that. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought that was definitely a lot of fun. I, I think this is a book that um, it's not hugely deep, but I do think it's a book that is worth like coming back to you from time to time, I, even though like I'm, I'm like never have enough time to reread stuff. I was like, I could see myself reading this book again in two or three years or, you know, um, especially if I was like, you know, had a, a child who was like, you know, hey, I want to read an adventure book or something like that. Or literally, okay, here, read this, you know. <laughs> this is this can get you a little education too at the same time, right? <laughs> um any other yeah, thoughts? Pivoting. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Okay. I was just gonna just wanted to like pivot off of the lock and how yeah. you know wanted more for I think that's kind of why we have Hanukkah. 
Um, cause he, he's kind of, you know, he's the backboard to the, yeah. you know, the, the one-on-one game that the two main characters are, but Falak's gone. Yeah. So we need him to kind of observe them. Um, and he's just so well sketched because, you know, he's like, they find him, you know, in a ruined temple, right? <laughs> and he's surviving miraculously for and not eight days, but for two days and two nights. And he has this, you know, he has this bag of water that he's sort of, you know, and it's one of the great lines. Like, he's like, I'm not going to drink it. It's only going to, you know, I got to keep this safe. And then as soon as he sees the two heroes, he like absentmindedly kind of chugs it. He's like, holy shit, look at those guys. It's great. He's a great, he's a great little character. And he just, I don't know. He's the, right. I don't know, what is, he, is it Pancho Sanza? Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, it's Pancho's, uh, 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 yeah. 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 Pancho Sanza, yeah. He yeah. has that line where he says, why did they take the gag off it? That's what started all this. <laughs> he's not quite uh, Walter Brennan, but he fills that role of like a Walter Brennan character in a Western, right? <laughs> or or what's his name? You know, the guy who had the really high, scratchy voice, like there was in all the... Uh, and it was kind of round in all the John Ford Westerns. I'm trying to remember what his name was. Gabby but, Hayes. Gabby mm-hmm. Hayes or one of those guys like that. He fills yeah. that kind of role. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now that you're talking about all these characters, that's, that is a great feature of the book is all these minor characters are so well uh, described in a short period. They, they, they're cameo appearances, but they're, you, you know who they are very quickly and they come on, they leave. And they're and you remember all of them. So <laughs> yeah, I was gonna mention the uh the, the like he's so good at like you said, uh Robert, just the quick sketches, like the captains when they're deciding whether or not they're going to mutiny. <laughs> I've got the gaunt and florid captain who's giving this long reasoned explanation and the stout languid captain that calls him a dumbass. And there's the bow-legged veteran who's like, right. well, we're gonna clearly have to disband. It's like those guys live, that's how to DM, right? right. Just <laughs> quick, pithy, punchy stuff. All right. And I love how, like, when people recognize that there's a scam going on, they're like, you sons of bitches, right? Like, like, like the Ragnar half face or the Mahout at the very beginning. <laughs> it's like, you <laughs> sons of bitches. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's not, yeah, I've, I'm thinking this is um, probably one of the more fun books we've read in, in a good stretch, I would say, you know, for like, and I think in a way that, there is genuine humor. Like always talk, we always joke talk about how like Robert E. Howard's like mirth, right? You know, but Conan is not funny, right? It's like he might have mirth, but there's no actual humor in any of the Conan stories, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah. Um so that I think definitely is where I think Siobhan's uh most direct connection to libraries is in the humor, I think. Um and, and the sort of little quick pressures of characterization and and how people like can sort of both fool themselves, but also reveal something about themselves in their in, in, the, in their own internal monologues, I think is very successful in this book. And, and as you say, it's like, you know, in one line, you know, right. So any last thoughts on this uh, section as a book as book before we start pivoting towards what we might take away from gaming for this? So what, um, what what do you think uh, is something that you would like to steal for for a game in any of yours? Uh, you had mentioned just Brandon just being able to you know run characters, you know. How about you, Adam? Any thoughts? Um, yes, I like playing in a world there where there's no magic per se, mm-hmm. but uh, people believe people have superstitious belief, but there's no magic, and I like. Uh, he's a bit like my. Uh, Nialo Glaken, my seventeenth uh, century minimalist character, who's a he's a plague doctor. It's later, it's later in time, yeah. but it's like he's not a cleric; he's a physician. You know. Sorry, one, one more time with the name. Uh, Nialo Glaken. Awesome. <laughs> okay, he was. It's I got that off of Wikipedia. He was a real plague doctor. <laughs> so I love you know, and uh, you know, just the whole idea of having an actual physician, an actual like scientific, you know, such as it is, you know, character as opposed to like all this magic and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that reminds me a little bit of the uh, Patrick O'Brien books where they always like mystified by what Stephen Maturin is able to do and they consider him borderline wizardly, but he's just, you know, a man, of, a modern man of science, you know. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> All right. How about how about you, Robert? Any any particular thing that you would love to steal for your game? 
Um, well, this this book is so grounded, as as Adam said. Um, it's uh, I always start thinking first of magical things, magical elements, and there's not really any of that. So I I definitely struggled to come up with something. But what what I'm thinking I might use is if I'm uh, the power structure of the kingdom or the where they're going to is it uh bulak and or you have a beck and a kagan that's right, what bulak i'm getting the at beck. right exactly yeah the dual exactly right. power structure seem i think that could be used uh to create complications for player characters so that's what i would uh choose mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that sort of like each, again, I mean, very little is actually known about the KSRs to a T, but, you know, there's a lot of things that have been said. But I like that there's a bunch of societies that are close together and they sort of know things about other places. Like, oh, over there they do this thing and over here they do this thing. Um, so that in a D&D game, of course, you always have the rumors. So you can have the rumors and, oh, it is known, it is known, but, it's, but is it really? Um, <laughs> right. Um, and you can do that whether it's just a traditional all human game or even like it is known about the orcs. Like, and you find out the orcs have are totally different. They have this their whole other governing structure that we don't know about. And it turns out maybe that orcs are all matriarchal, and that the reason that orcs are raiders is that's just, that's just to get rid of the hotheads. And that when you get back into the actual oh, wow. orc, <laughs> you know, the orc, uh, you know, uh, core civilization, you find out that yeah, 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 we that's just like that's like orc room springer. We just send them out. <laughs> yeah. like the Vikings as well they sent <laughs> the most restless ones off to raid yeah. you know yeah so speaking of the rumors I, I don't think I truly understood uh, what the exact reason there was a dual power relationship or what the duties were split up as anything like that but it just reminded me of like uh, you would have a in medieval times you would have a pope and he was powerful and then you would have um, a king mm-hmm. and obviously they both it, it really as far as my understanding of european history it really just depended upon the era you were in as to who had the upper hand you know mm-hmm. and so. a lot of uh, modern democracies actually have a president and a prime minister say for example in ireland the <clears throat> the president is much more of like a constitutional gatekeeper a bit like the british monarch as well so the I, it could be like the essentially the head of the senate in the u.s being like a prime minister who's elected specifically to that position so there wouldn't be the same um vying for power between the president and say the senate and, and house of representatives usually like the constitutional head can be a president who has less power than the prime minister who's specifically elected to that position mm-hmm. and so on so it is a more common even to this day political structure yeah, and speaking yeah. about like the neighborhood feeling of it, I liked how the Kagan was very interested in the, in the gossip from Amram. He's like, "So have you, have you actually killed any kings?" And he's like, "Oh, just a few <laughs> minor kings." And he was always so happy to hear that. <laughs> it's like yeah. leaning over the fence, like, "You're the man I need for the job I have for you." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <Yes>. And that <laughs> was like, doesn't close. actually kill him, right? That was the closest they sort of like hint because he knew so much stuff. Like, how does he know this stuff? Did he have really good spies, or was he a little bit mystical? You know the Kagan because he's he's supposedly the one who sort of um, I'd have to reread, but I think the Kagan is closer to divinity. Has like has communication to to the gods or the sky, you know, in the way that the Beck is a, a more temporal leader, right? And that reminded me a little bit of um, uh, again. You've talked about these dual structures, like uh, for example, you have Japan, you have the emperor who is borderline divine, and you had the shogun at one point during the shogun, and who was like a, a you know a, a political and military leader. Um, and so that the, the, the divine leader has no day-to-day power, but they do have the ability to sort of take away the mandate of sort of the political leader. Right. So, um, and, yeah, they and definitely set the Kagan up as almost having, uh, like a prisoner feel like he was incarcerated. Yeah. In right. It's like, a, and also like the sort of the Aztec Kings, you know, after certain, you know, cause they're told a certain day they're going to get strangled by the silk garot. Right. And you know, the Aztec sun King is like, has like what, one year before they're, you know where they're perfect and then they, they get sacrificed but i also like when he becomes one of the the fake raiding knights and he's just like super jolly and they're like he's, he's got some kind of scam going <laughs> so that was him right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Was, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. they're like no it no no our papers are all in order 
It's like, you'll see that. It's like, he's just like, he's too jolly. Nobody was steaming could be that jolly. You know, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was like, is that, I can't, is it? <laughs> so. Yeah. The uh, only gaming thing that, um, that I was thinking yes, of, um, that we haven't already mentioned was, um, like, I'm not sure, <laughs> but it seemed to me like they didn't actually kill anyone themselves or heroes. And, when they're trying to get Hillel back, they're trying to bust in um, to the uh, the army's camp, and Zeligman's going around is chloroforming everybody. I thought that would be like a good sort of mini game to introduce to your campaign. Like you have to do this, but you can't kill anyone. Okay, so that's you know seventy five percent of your um, weapons, <laughs> your 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 your, your tricks as a D and D player um, to just like okay, we gotta like. You actually have to think about the lay of the land and where the torches are. And just give it a little more thought to to get through without homicide. Right, right. And obviously with D and D, it's a little harder. You have something like the sleep spell or something like that. But it works very well in a sort of more uh, grounded game like a GURPS or a RuneQuest based game where where uh, you know a one on white fight, one on one fight's risky, let alone a two or three on one fight. Right, so I think yeah, that most, most definitely, and I think the the other thing is in skilled base skill based games that characters emerge from what they do, and and you can you get incredibly good at all these odd things like using your hats to um, deflect knives and, and and what have you, but um, but they're you know they're such skilled riders and um, uh, uh, and clearly um, stealthily. Um, knocking people out without killing them, and um, and their 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 skills are incredibly highly developed in these very odd and specific ways. Which, in a character class sense, is like, are you a cleric, thief, assassin? Although Zeligman does go on a killing spree when he's trying to find Amran, and the alarm is mm. raised in that first initial camp, and Amram sees him and hears him through. The shadows on the tent wall. Right. I think there's even an illustration about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's. Yes. Um, but both uh, Daniel and, and Brandon, you point out something really interesting that D doesn't really incentivize as much. Um, but I would love to see a game because again, a lot of uh, societies, pre-modern societies, yeah, gold is is useful and lovely, but livestock. And you talked about animals before life. So a game about like a cattle raid or something like that would be phenomenal, right? And I think, um, I know that RuneQuest is very much set up for that because they have the, you know, traditional Glorantha RuneQuest is set up for that because you're right there in Dragon Pass and the societies are semi-nomadic. And um, so I would love to see a game about that, about the planning that takes place to do like, a, you know, a cattle raid or to to discourage people from pursuing them by by cutting all of their horses loose and, you know, scattering them to the plains. I think that would be, a, a you know, a tremendous uh, scenario to play out. Um, and, and but I think it's maybe one thing that maybe we as modern um, gamers might not be as comfortable with because more, more of us are sort of disconnected from that that reality of understanding how again animals behave and, and that kind of stuff like that. Um, so. I'm picking up on that and going back to uh, what Dan mentioned with the animals before. I think make them characters. If you're the DM, there's a an opportunity to have them be willful like Hillel and the elephant at the end that just sort of solves the whole story <laughs> right there. You know, I mean, that I don't remember uh, recently my games having these kinds of animal characters in the game. So that's, that seems like that would be a great opportunity to mm -hmm. add those. Yeah. They always turn out to be lycanthropes in disguise. Always. 100%. <laughs> All right. And that, since we're talking about gaming, that's one thing I really liked about um, Philak, that the part that I would like to take away is a character having a deep-rooted secret in the party that only the, the DM and the player knows. And that's, you know, there might be passing of notes or texting, or if it's via Zoom, it's obviously a lot easier. Um, but somehow there's this deep-rooted secret that's tied to the whole adventure that only gets revealed at the end. I thought that was a fantastic, like a almost like a plot device that would be really good to have in role-playing. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of like the more story games, they have like a thing like your one, your one secret or the one true thing about you. Um, but I don't think there's any reason why you couldn't implement that in a more traditional um, 
you know, D and D, uh, uh, you know, racing class type game. And it, you might not even be mechanical in any sense. You just literally just have the beginning of the game. Okay. Everybody just tell me once you can just me as a GM and it may not come up for a long time, may not ever come up, but you're, the one secret thing about your character, um, and you can role play to it or not, but okay. I know this one thing about your character and, um, and then the compact between the, the GM and the player is that you could use that one secret thing to make their lives like super interesting, but you wouldn't hose them automatically <laughs> for it. Right. <laughs> um, and I think, um, but of course, everyone would be tempted to say, you know, that's with the D and D, you know, the, the backgrounds. I don't, I don't want like a, a five page backstory on anyway. I just want like a literally one sentence. Like, what is this one true thing about you? you know? Yeah, because <laughs> you'd end up with a chosen one background, right? Uh, every time, so, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's three chosen ones in this game. <laughs> right. right. Well, clearly, at least two of you have to be antichrists. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I remember wow. I, I was in one campaign where one player had a cursed sword, so where he thought it was a plus three sword, but actually a minus three sword. So then when it came to dividing up treasure and artifacts and things we'd found, like there might be plus two armor, he'd say, oh, I'd love that because, uh, you know, we sort of worked out a situation, but we would say, why would you need plus two armor? Because you have a plus three sword, don't you? <laughs> it's like, so he, his character then had to argue how he didn't need it, actually, because his player knew, but his character did not know. <laughs> we were cruel. We were very right. cruel. Right. And I do think that cursed, uh, since you mentioned that, cursed items should definitely be done in sort of both a narrative and a mechanical sense, so that you do have to narrate, like, what he misses because of that margin of the cursed sword like how he misses it. it's like some like thing where he just doesn't think it's cursed it's like oh that lucky thing that person that he personally saw that slipped on horse shit and fell on their back so he just missed decapitating them right you know something like that, that just makes it so that he feels like he's still heroic and has a plus three sword he just you know, just keep but, uh, missing yeah <laughs> okay so um yeah yeah so i think also um with these kind of um sort of uh little contracts that we have between the gm and the players um you know we can see that there's these things that if this was a game right you have backstory with amram and you have backstory with uh um zelikman right so zelikman's family's killed in uh you know basically a um what's the word i'm using here pogrom uh, pogrom. pogrom pogrom and uh you know and amram's looking for his lost daughter and becomes a character background he's never there's never that story maybe if there was ever another gentleman of the road series he'll go you know but it's creates that little motivation there right and that's you know a 10 point uh 10 point disadvantage in in uh gerps right <laughs> to build mm -hmm. to build their character right right, right. seeks lost daughter um how do you feel about those kind of things though that are not do they have to come up and play if these people, if people give you a background thing, does it have to come up and play? How often does it come up and play if you're, if you're a GM? Um, Robert, maybe. maybe. Um, well, I know in one of the games I'm playing currently, I have uh, my own ideas about, I've informed my game master about the background of my character. Uh, you know, she comes from a, uh, like a sort of, uh, martial monk style monastery and all this, not going to tell you all the background of my character. Cause I know that's pretty diddly, but, uh, <laughs> and, and it doesn't, uh, so my background doesn't come into play that much, uh, as I'm playing, but I know it's there and it works for me. And that helps me as the player to enjoy what i'm doing so i don't and i know everybody else i'm playing with they also have ideas of their own characters right and and i don't necessarily uh see that played out explicitly in our games uh but like there's a very religious cleric uh that i'm playing with and there will be times when that becomes an issue if the other religions are encountered but uh it's, it, I just think it helps the players. Why, why not? You, the GM doesn't have to invoke everything. It's, it, we're all in our own heads as we play these games, right? So, 
Um, if it's touched on occasionally, that's that's fine, but it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Daniel, you have some thoughts in there. You look. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that you know, I've I've just started upgrading from old-fashioned RuneQuest to RuneQuest Glorantha, and it's and it's designed into uh, to RuneQuest Glorantha where you have loyalties and hatred so you might and and, and love so you know, if you love your family you're loyal to your tribe you hate chaos you may hate another tribe um and um and and you can use those that those those things to to augment roles so if your brother has been kidnapped um you can use your your love of family to to augment your search role for example so that that that's something that that can work really well and and where you're being rewarded for um, generally because it can go wrong. You can fumble, <laughs> um, but you can be rewarded for for bringing in aspects of your character, um, and 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 they also get tend to get um, more powerful the more you use them. Do you find uh, since it's mechanized in in RuneQuest that um, you have to give equal weight to everybody's? particular things in a session or is it more like um okay we're going to sort of alternate and different people take different spotlights you know uh, you know depending on the session i i, I think it's it, it's it, it's um it's very much in the in the situation and, and i think i think it, it it works quite naturally um uh, and uh uh, and uh, and since every character, I mean, th- there'll, there'll be situations where a particular character takes the spotlight, but um, but but it's something that applies to everybody, and it's it's part of every character build. Yeah, I feel like um, as long as they buy in, I think that's the most important. You don't want to, um, uh, you don't want to like dictate like, okay, you're going to be the 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 character from the gutter. You're poor. You have nothing to somebody who wanted to like play a prince, right? As long as there's, you know, there's collusion between the DM and the character, then it should just like you know, characters shouldn't want to express themselves that way. Mm-hmm. All right, we're um, getting close to the end here. Any last thoughts on uh, the book, both whether just straight as the book or whether in the context of gaming before, uh, for anybody? Um, how about you, Rick? First. So I loved it. It was a really nice story. Um, a little bit like Brandon, I did listen to a little bit of the Audible, but I found the pace was slower and actually found just reading it, it was a much faster paced book. And I liked that about it, like the kind of Moorcock and Favreau and Grey Mauser books. I thought it just flowed really well. It was a nice story. It's about a historical context that most of us don't know. So it was really interesting that way. Characters were interesting. All of the characters were very interesting. Um, even the elephants, the two different elephants, uh, which you haven't talked about much. Um, but I just thought it was a very nice read. I would not have picked it up myself, but now that I read it, I think I'll go back and look at some of those other books as well. I'm just surprised I've just never heard of them before this. And definitely a thoroughly good read that I'd highly recommend. Uh, Brandon? Yeah, I'm, I'm with Rick. Uh, it's um, It's a book to be read. I would say there's just so much pleasure in um, speaking of the animals. Um, you know, when two men are on horseback, the horse doesn't run or walk; it totters. You can kind of—it's like there's no <laughs> way, right? I mean, when an elephant walks down a ramp onto a dock, it has a womanly sway. Yes, right. I've seen an elephant walk all my life. It's the first time I've heard it described that way, and it's just—it's—it's it's like it's gem-like in its perfection. Right. Amram gets thrown from a horse over the main and it's as if thunder and lightning had been reversed right nice. before he takes a, a hoof into his chest it's great nice. and i also liked when they, he differentiated between hillel which is sort of an arabian horse offshoot and the, the horses of the um the muslim mercenaries which are more suited for the rocky mountains and plains but they weren't as fast you know yeah no horseshoes no horseshoes too just out there uh, yeah and wild uh, and then uh, uh yeah, it's just I don't know. It's good. It's 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 uh, read it. As far as games go, I just um, I've not played any of these games, but I feel like it's a heist, right? This is a heist mm-hmm. story. There's swindlers said twice, and um, I think there's like a game called Spire where you're kind of doing it 
except instead of going up a tower, it's horizontal, right? They're going mm-hmm. on the road or maybe know, blades in the dark or something. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, yeah, just a lot of blades in the dark for Christmas. And yeah, I think things like um, Seligman's attempt to, to rescue Amram, where he's, he wants to buy him as a slave, but there's a plan B. And then sort of coming out of the action to design that plan B um, would, would work brilliantly. Um, but like you, you both love love the book, and I definitely want to read more Michael Shabon. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Uh, Robert? Yeah, I agree with everybody else's opinions on the book. Uh, th- I would recommend it. It's quick to read. Uh, if you are looking for something that's uh, closer to our period in the time it was written, but it has the feel of an old classic that you probably a genre classic that you like then you'll go for this and i just i think it was uh brandon just mentioned it and others have mentioned it before the swindlers the gentlemen of the road i just i I, that was something that got hit on uh uh, right at the uh finishing chapters of the book and it got me thinking about what exactly the gentlemen of the road were what were what was that and i never really came to a heart i think think it could be a lot of things uh of who they are but uh, i liked how that was hammered uh a lot at the end and it kind of defined them in particular the two main characters so you would almost expect this to be a series but i Mm -hmm. i don't know if it'll ever be returned to but I like that idea too. The gentleman that was sort of a, it's a, a sort of semi euphemistic term, but just you know for adventurer. But it gives them a certain sort of uh, swagger and panache that that they're not just raiders and and, and you know mm-hmm. uh, you know murderers. So, yeah. uh, uh, Adam, um, I thought one cool thing about this was I I was hitting the Wikipedia pretty hard for yeah. like different aspects of this book, and it's like so much of this stuff is real. You know, it's like there really were, you know, this RC, uh, you know, uh, Muslim fighters in the Khazari Empire and all this stuff. And uh, there are some funny allusions like Hillel, the horse, Zelikman's horse. Hillel was like a, a Jewish scholar. So and there's all kinds of like cool stuff like that. So if you just like go, go through uh and hit the names they mean different things and you know how much of it was like drawn from from life you know even though like there's like he says there's the kazari uh empire like they don't know precisely what it was like but um they know enough you know and i thought that was that was really cool how how much of it came from real life so Mm -hmm. I did like how he sort of showed his homework at the end and gave us like, you know, a bunch of web pages and listed like the six off three books that you should get. <laughs> and, you know, Shaban turns out to be quite a big nerd too, because he did a lot of the stuff for the, uh, you know, a lot of background work for the new Star Trek stuff, especially on the Picard series. He's like an executive producer. So he's, he's definitely, a, you know, a nerd. And so it's funny. He's talking about how he came through this through literary fiction. I mean, he talked about it in his, in his, uh, afterward, right? But, you know, maybe the things that people most love are things that sort of are sort of that straddle that line between genre fiction and literary fiction, like this book or Cavalier and Clay and potentially Yiddish Policeman's Union, again, which I don't know as much about. Um, so I think there's fertile ground to be measured there. And I think he doesn't um, condescend to genre fiction, unlike a lot of uh, literary fiction writers who want to like, oh, we do this thing. It's like it's barely science fiction. We did this one thing. What if but this? Right. He's like, nope, I'm all, I'm all in. Right. I'm all in on writing a, a historical adventure story. Right. Um, so that I really appreciate about this book. And I, I definitely could see rereading this on uh, maybe, maybe not annual, but every three or four years. Like, oh, hey, how are, how are they doing? Zelikman and, and Amram. Oh, I get to see they're, they're, they're doing fine. You know? <laughs> um, in the same way that we would re- revisit, you know, Fafford or any of our other favorite sort of sword and sorcerer heroes. So, um, OK, well. We're uh, running out of time. Um, I did want you to let you guys know that the next uh, book we will be reading at the end of the, uh, January will be uh, Caroline Stevermer's uh, A College of Magics. And then after that will be, I believe, um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in mid-February. And then it's a sort of 
cyberpunk back to back and then at the end of the month it'll be neuromancer um so those are the next three books that we'll be reading so uh college of magic i think is a little bit longer that's why we're giving it uh four weeks to get done um and my sort of proposal for this is going to be a while off episode 144 i was thinking since we've been reading this uh is orientalisms so um with that, uh, the candidates will be uh, William Beckford's Bafek, F. Marion Crawford's Khaled, uh, Gustav Flaubert's Salambo, and George Meredith's The Shaving of Shagpat. Those will be the candidates for our Orientalist stuff. Might be a little harder to read, might be a little bit florid, so we might have to give that four weeks rather than two weeks to read those books. Um, all right. It's great to see everybody again. Happy New Year again. Best health and happiness. And uh, hope to see everybody really soon. So. All right. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New Year. Year. Happy All the best. Happy New Year. Bye.